You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my favorite authors back on the show. Brad Taylor uh, is here to talk about his book, End of Days. Uh, Brad, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's this Pike Taylor's uh, um, 16th book. It is, 16th book. Yeah, and and, and uh, I meant Pike Logan, not Pike yeah. Taylor. I'm looking at your name and 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 stumbled on that. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, you've been on the show a couple of times uh, already, and you know we we've established the fact that that I just love the Logan thrillers. They're they're fantastic. I love what you're doing. Um, you know when you when you get 16 books deep into a series, uh, is it ever a challenge? looking for new things to put a character into and, and to find new ways to, uh, you know, to, to do, to do horrible things to these people that we've all come to love. Yeah, it really is. The, uh, and I, I would break it up into like strategic operational and tactical. So strategic wise, I can usually come up with a good plot line. Yeah. A grand overarching scheme of what's going to happen and what the threat is and that kind of stuff. But as you get closer to like the tactical, you don't want to do the same thing every book. And so then it gets harder and harder and harder to figure out. I mean, I'm constantly saying to myself, well, you just did that in the last book. So now you got to figure out something else, you know, how are you going to solve this problem here? So it's not just a repeat. So it does get more difficult. It's not impossible, but it does. Yeah. You know, um, I think last year when we talked, we we briefly touched on the fact that we were kind of in the middle of a pandemic. Um and I don't think any of us knew that that this would stretch for more than a year longer than, than when we talked last time. I think we we kind of were seeing a little hope on the horizon at the time and and, you know, ignorance is bliss, I guess. Um, but, you know, you've uh, you've written at least one whole book during the pandemic. And, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, the previous book, you know, had some form of its life during the pandemic. I know that, you know, there's a a long process of editing and then the publishing process. But, but what is, what has been the difference for you writing during a pandemic than, uh, than, you know, what, what your normal process is like, uh, you know, writers spend a lot of time by themselves in their home office. And, uh, you know, so what the outside world does, doesn't factor in a whole lot, but there is sort of a mental aspect with knowing that the rest of the world is locked down with you. It's, it, a little crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, it was uh, it was really bad for me because I don't have a home office. I don't even wow. have a desk. I uh, write wherever I am, and so you know, one day I'll just pack up my laptop and head off to the beach, or pack up my laptop and head off to a park, or to a library, or just a bazillion different spots that I write at. And uh, when the pandemic hit, they were all closed. You couldn't go anywhere, and so it was uh, it was pretty trying, yeah, mentally, because you, you're sitting there in a the house and you know locked in completely. So American Trader, the biggest problem with that book is uh, I got to do everything I needed to do. And then the pandemic hit and I had to write the book during the pandemic. But I, I, you know, I write about current events and the problem with current events are they're current. 
Right. <laughs> so I had, uh, you know, all kinds of surveillance scenes and, and globe trotting and all that. And I was like, well, how are you going to write that when the only two people on the street are the target and the guy following him? Uh, you know, how's Pike going to fly anywhere when no planes are flying? How are we going to get inside anywhere when no one's allowing Americans to go anywhere? So I had to skin that cat. And then this book, uh, End of Days, was completely written uh, during the pandemic. And I didn't even get to travel. So for American Trader, I went to Australia and Taiwan. This one, we couldn't go anywhere. Uh, and so it was really hard, difficult trying to figure out, because um, I do a lot better when I get on the ground and do what we call sights, sounds, smells of the battlefield type thing, experience the culture, see what's on the ground, that kind of stuff. And so I had to, luckily, only about 10% of my book research stuff actually makes it into a book. So, and I, luckily I kept all my pictures. So I had to go back and say, okay, where have you been that you haven't used in a book yet that you can, you know, the granular stuff that's on the ground and how it'd be. And so I did factor the pandemic into this book, uh, actually, but, uh, because of just the way it was going. Um, you know, the, the uh, um, vaccines had just come out. We hadn't seen Delta yet, but there was talk of another variant and things like that. So I kind of tried to be prog uh, prog prognosticator on what was going to happen with it. And I did OK, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, there, there's a, a line where um, a lot of authors that I've talked to um, have fall on either one side of the line or the other. And in, in you know, one side is um, I don't ever want to talk about the pandemic in my books because people come to these stories to escape what's going on in the real world. And, and, and you know, it's bad enough to live in it. We don't want to read about it. And then the other folks uh, are kind of on the other side of the line and, and they're like, well, this is kind of one of the, the greatest um, things that's happened to humanity to, you know, to mine for plot points. Uh, and people want to um, kind of live vicariously through characters that we've come to love and trust. And, and if they can navigate through this, then I, as a real person can, um, we know that in, in this book, you, uh, you know, COVID is a reality. And, in, you know, in the beginning of the book, you, you kind of face that head on. And, and because your books are um, timely and, and taken from, from real life and real life experience, um, was it imperative to you that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this head on and, and we're going to talk about it as, as uncomfortable as it might be? Yeah, it, it wasn't imperative in the sense that I had some kind of ulterior motive that I wanted to make a statement about COVID or anything. It's just because I'm writing about current events and that's what's happening. Um, and there's, you know, pluses and minuses to it. For instance, um, like if you're working in uh, London, they've got cameras everywhere and facial recognition software everywhere. I mean, you can't move anywhere in London without, you know, getting spotted. Yeah. Well, yeah. during the pandemic, you wear sunglasses, hat, and a mask. You look like a bank robber, but so does everybody else. So, I mean, there's things that function for a thriller. <laughs> I can get away with a lot of stuff now because nobody's going to recognize me. Uh, the bad thing is that, you, you know, you have to have – and I actually wickered that in. You have to have the ability to get into countries. And at the time, uh, we couldn't uh, – as Americans, we weren't allowed to go into the EU. But Israel was. And I, I saw that, and I was like, well, I've got a couple of Israeli assassins. So I can get into the EU along with Pike and the crew. And so I had to just factor it in, not because I was trying to take on COVID head on, but how would I actually do this? If this was a real world operation, I had to get guys overseas to do something. How would I do it? And the biggest concern I had, uh, believe it or not, was I was writing about that just then was when this book comes out right now, we'd be completely out of pandemic. And then I think everybody would have the thought of, do I really want to read about what a shitty life, or, excuse me, what a horrible time that yeah. was then? 
Um, and I thought to myself, I looked at all the data and everything, and I said, I don't think this thing's going to be over by January. And unfortunately, I was right. It's really interesting that you bring that up about the face coverings and and how, um, you know, these are these are excellent devices for a thriller writer to get to to use uh, because I remember you know walking into the bank or uh, wherever it might be and and there being signs, uh, you know, please take off your hat and sunglasses, uh, hoodies, things like that, and then you know almost not necessarily the next day, but it, it feels like it. Uh, then we see signs, you know, cover up, put oh, put man. masks on, and and you know what a a, you know, a just a complete coin flip of of what where we used to be and what we thought of as safe to what now is thought of as safe, and and all of the um, concessions that have to be made to to factor that in is it's pretty crazy. Yeah, there is a wide disparity though, but you know, between countries, between cultures. Um, uh, of how they're dealing with it. And I tried to capture that on page two, because some places you can go to and they don't care one way or the other. I mean, you can do whatever you want to. I mean, they may have signs up saying stay six feet apart and everybody's packed, you know, inside it like a cattle car. It's some places just do not care. Other places it's complete lockdown. Yeah. Well, I know that the thinking has changed uh, over the last couple of years uh, about the origins of COVID and um, you know, at the beginning, uh, you know, someone ate a bat sandwich and, and there it comes. And, and now, uh, you know, it's becoming more and more acceptable to start at least thinking about, you know, m- maybe this was created in a lab or this was, you know, something that got loose or, or something like that. Um, do you think we're going to see more of those types of plots uh, coming in for, for thriller writers? Uh, you might. I, I mean, I, you know, I wrote The Widow Strike eight years ago and that's exactly what it was yeah h1n1 um modified in a lab to go airborne or h5n1 i'm sorry avian flu um but i you know that that whole theory there's people are conflating the theories here so there's somebody got it by eating a bat or it was in the um lab and escaped those are two different things or three it was designed in a lab and and i look at it as analogous to uh somebody says i'm gonna go hiking i'm gonna go to the zoo and then they find him with a snake bite. Now you can either did he get the snake bite out hiking or did he get the snake bite in the zoo? Well, the third option is somebody built the snake to sicken on him. I mean, that one is out there. Yeah, it's, it 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 comes down to semantics in a, in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, except for the designed, you yeah, know, right. purposely. I I just don't buy that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I see it escaping from a lab. It's, that's certainly plausible, but it doesn't mean that somebody was you know, had designed this bioweapon to sick on the United States. Sure, sure. Yeah, and and take out the rest of the world with it. it, it seems Including their own economy. <laughs> exactly. That that seems a little reckless. Um, so, Brad, you know, you talked about how you normally, your creative process when you start talking about a book, you like to, you know, get boots on the ground, see, smell, um, experience the culture. You didn't get to do that with this book. Um, and, and I know that you, you chose... Um, a locale that that you had some experience with and had some things to draw on, um, but but how did that affect the the you know the early process of the book? Um, I, I know that you you picked places that that you could draw on, um, but not having that travel time and and the uh, the time in country did that affect how the book began for you? Uh, it didn't affect how the book began. It affected the book all the way through. 
because um, everybody has a memory. You know, five years ago, I went to, uh, well, for me personally, five years ago, I went to Tel Aviv. Um, well, a lot happens in five years. You know, there's, things change in five years. Uh, and so I had to uh, be very careful that I wasn't saying something that, you know, was not true anymore. And it, it required a lot more research um, just on, on the computer and everything else. So I knew exactly where I was. I could look at the pictures and then I'd go to um, Google Earth or something like that and see if I could see, is that strip mall still there? Is that Kentucky Fried Chicken? For instance, Bahrain has American Alley. And uh, American Alley's been there forever. But people come, people go, people come, people go. And um, I remember eating a Kentucky Fried Chicken there. So I'm like, is that thing still there? I'm not sure. And I had to figure that out. Wow. Um, Brad, you know, politics, um, of course, has a role to play in uh, especially thrillers like yours. Um, We like to think that uh, our military and our political system, as we think of it, are are separate entities and, and one doesn't affect the other we would like to think that but what are the realities because uh you know over the last year we've had a regime change in the united states we have a a different president now than we did then and uh you know the um the climate around uh the time of the change was was a little tumultuous and um you know a lot of a lot of hurt feelings on on either side and um you know a lot of uh uh how how do, do do things like that that are happening that happen in the political climate? How does that actually affect the military, and and does that ever factor into the books that you write? Uh, it doesn't factor into. Well, it kind of did when Hannister took over after uh, President Warren was killed. There's a spoiler alert for you, <laughs> uh, but not really. And, and I don't do politics in the books. This is 16th book, and I've been through several administrations, and not once have I ever mentioned what party the administration's in. Sure. You won't find that in a book. Um, cause I, I don't like reading about politics myself. I'm a reader first when I'm reading fiction and somebody wants to throw out a bunch of political stuff, either left or right. I don't want to read that. That's I'm trying to do escapism here and not get your views on stuff. So I just stay right. away from all that. But in the real world, believe it or not, there's not that big of a shift. I, I, I served through, um, shoot, I think five administrations and wow, both wow. Republican and Democrat. And you'd be amazed at the, uh, the, the minutes somebody takes over the minute Obama takes over the entire military's turned into just horrible, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then the minute, you know, Trump takes over now they're back and strong again. Well, the department of defense is a gigantic beast. It, <laughs> yes, it's it not is. something that changes overnight. And, uh, I, it, I routinely, I mean, you see it right now, you know, now Biden's in and all of a sudden the military's all woke and all this. And I'm like, come on, it doesn't, they, things just go as they go. You're doing your training, you're preparing to go to war. Uh, you're training for what your mission is, whatever that may be. It doesn't really affect you. Gotcha. Um, the the new book, End of Days, uh, has a very provocative title. Um, and, you know, when you're when you're talking about um, the Holy Land, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of um, uh, terminology that's that's pregnant with meaning for a lot of people in 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 a, in a lot of different ways. Um, when did you get the idea to to write about, you know, this uh, sort of end of the world scenario and, and people that would like to to push the envelope? I actually um, for the idea of this book came, I was doing research for Ring of Fire. Uh, we'd been to Morocco and Spain and everywhere else. And we had a, a couple day layover in Rome on the way home. And um, we were being a great American tourist. We took a Segway tour and uh, uh, the guide pointed out the uh, Knights of Malta. 
well, car drove by is actually what happened and had diplomatic plates. And he said, that's a Knights of Malta. And I never heard of him said, what, you know, what are Knights of Malta? And so he took us to the magisterial palace and uh, gave us class on it. And it's the most fascinating thing I never heard of. They've been around since the first crusade. Uh, they ha- are considered by international law a sovereign state, but they own no terrain. And they, they have a seat at the United Nations. They make their own coins. They make their own stamps. They have their own passports, but they own no terrain. And it was just a fascinating organization. And so I always said, when he says, I'm going to use them in a book. And then I got locked in for COVID, couldn't go anywhere. And I said, now's the time to do some research on that organization. So I, I got five or six books on them. And in that, uh, talking about the very beginning of the Crusades, they started talking about a thing called dispensationalism, which is basically believing the Bible and the end of days of what's going to happen with the second coming of Christ. And that's the reason the whole crusade started. We got to take over Jerusalem. We got to build the third temple. We're going to bring Christ back. Um, and there's a lot of people to a greater or lesser degree that believe in those theories. Most Christians hold some of that true. I mean, my, myself, did. when you think about certain things that, that uh, you may not believe completely um, in the literal sense, but it's infused in Christianity. And a lot of religions, Seventh-day Adventists came from that thought process. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that really believe in it. And in, I ran across a book um, called The Road to Armageddon, believe it or not. And it's, it was basically about why do evangelical Christians support Israel so much? And the reason they do is because they have a literal interpretation, not all of them, but some of them have a literal interpretation of the Bible. They want the third temple built on the uh, Temple Mount, and they want Israel to own all the promised land. Because before any of that happens, that's what has to happen in order to... Um, uh, have the second coming of Christ. And some of it's super literal, like there has to be a completely pure red heifer born that's sacrificed at the tomb. Uh, well, a guy in Wyoming is a cattle rancher, and he says, I can make that happen. He went to Israel and started breeding cattle trying to get a red heifer, because that's what needed to happen. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. See, I... As someone who grew up in the Bible Belt, um, you know, of course, you know, all of uh, all of this talk of the end times and, and all of that is, is very much ingrained in our culture in, in one way or another. Um, and, you know, it, as a as a Christian, if you if you look with hope to the future and, uh, you know, you you know, if, if you choose to to believe the book of Revelation and in uh you know, in a literal sense, um, then there are certain signposts that people look for. What I've never understood is the mentality of people that see these things, believe in them so deeply, therefore they um, start manipulating world events to try to rush that on. Um, and and in a lot of ways, that that's the kind of mentality mentality that we're dealing with in the book here. There's people that that are are going to make it happen. They're they're going to set the stage, uh, almost like uh, you know God needs our help, and therefore we're going to set the wheels in motion for Him. Um, how do you get into the the mind of of that sort of thinking? And uh, you know, um, are there certain things that that you read or or or, or, or 
yeah. do or, you know, to, to start thinking Basically, that way? All the research I was talking about, if you look at the history of it, uh, it used to be very passive. Um, we would just, uh, um, when something like during the Civil War, there was a lot of people looking at certain actions in the Civil War and saying, here it comes. This is what they said in, you know, the book of Daniel. Um, and But they didn't try to do anything. They just were passive about it. Yeah. Well, then, uh, right up, it's pretty modern type stuff, about 1940s-ish. Nobody ever thought that, uh, you know, Israel's never going to have a country. And then, boom, Balfour Declaration comes out, State of Israel happens. And then everybody's like, holy moly, that is a signpost. That really is the thing. Well, then Israel did the 67 war, and they took over the Temple Mount, took over Jerusalem, but they refused to give it uh, or refused to take control of it. They left it with Jordan. And that aggravated a bunch of people. They're like, wait a minute, that's you're supposed to take over that thing. You're supposed to have it all the way to the Jordan River to the sea. That's what you're supposed to do, uh, which is a, what a lot of people want the settlements in the West Bank now so they can get this prophecy going. And so it's changed over time. Now people are much more proactive about, uh, you know, Let's see what we can, if we can cause this stuff to happen. I mean, there's a, a Temple Mount uh, uh, organization that wants to cause a huge fight on the temple, with, uh, and they work with Jewish organizations. Even though in the Bible, the Jews are all going to get killed. I don't know why the Jewish people think this is a great idea, but they all work together. <laughs> what, what's, um, what's interesting, Brad, is um, that you know when when you're designing a uh, a a bad guy air quotes or you know an antagonist for the book um you know there's one school of thought is uh, uh you know developing someone that's motivated by pure evil um another great antagonist is someone that's a true believer um but maybe their thinking is a little skewed uh, but they really believe they're doing the right thing um, and, and for, for my money, I think those people are, are way more scary than, than the pure evil. Um, it, it, how, how do you think about, um, you know, antagonist and, and definitely their motivations? Definite second school of thought there, because, um, there, there is no such thing, well, at least in my own personal experience. I mean, I've sat across from real terrorists and they laugh and they joke and they, they seem to be nice guys. And you're like, why does that guy want to blow everybody up? Well, he doesn't think he's the bad guy. Right. thinks he's the good guy. I mean, he thinks I'm the bad guy. And he's saying, why are these people invading my country? Um, so the uh, it's always, I always try to craft an antagonist that you can actually care about. Uh, I mentioned the widow strike earlier. I had a, they had a thing in Chechnya called the Black Widows, which are uh, wives or widows of people who have been disappeared by the government. And they turned out to be quite deadly because the females could get into more places than men. And when they blew themselves up, they killed a lot of people. Well, I built her from the ground up. So when you get to when she's definitely doing bad stuff, make no mistake, but you kind of understand why she's doing it. I mean, you see where she came from and, and she's, you know, she's she wasn't born Dr. Evil. She's not Hannibal Lecter. Uh, she has a reason for what she's doing. And it's the same with end of days. That guy's definitely got a reason for why he thinks he's doing it. And he thinks he's doing the greater good. He thinks that the bottom line, there's, you know, I might have to do a little evil, but the greater good is going to happen. Right. Um. When you've got a, a character like Pike Logan who has returned for, you know, 16 times for new adventures, um, he can only be so much of a superhero, um, you know, when he's on the job uh, without also uh, th that we care about and that we want to follow on more adventures. Um, th at some point, we, we have to know a little more about his personal life and there need to be personal stakes. 
that that he's challenged with. Um, and this book, you know, is even more so. Um, tell me about Pike's personal life and, and you know, what is this this job that he does? Uh, how does that prevent him or help him from being a, a normal guy? Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things about writing a series. I mean, I never thought I'd have one book published, much less 16. <laughs> so I, I'd like to say that, you know, I had some master plan and in book five, I'll do this and book eight will happen here. And I just don't do it that way. I write everything I write 100 percent into the book I'm writing. And then the next book, I think to myself, why did you do that that book? Now you have to deal with it. <laughs> uh, and a good example of that is Daughter of War. Uh, Mina is a 13 year old Syrian refugee. Right that was going to exit stage left at chapter four-ish. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with her. She was definitely not going to be in the book. She was just the thread. Pike was going to find her, find the thread, and then off to the races he goes. Uh, and I liked her too much, so I kept her in there. And then she ended up taking over the entire book. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great. It's one of the best books I've ever written, but now she exists. So the next time I start a book, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with Amina? She's I can't just, I used to kid about it and say, I'm going to have my opening scene at a funeral. She got hit by a car just so I have to deal with it. <laughs> so those kind of things are definitely, you've got to, because the character's got to grow. Human beings just grow just by living. I mean, you go to college, you grow. You have children, you grow. You get married, you grow. Sure. Uh, and so, um, I mean, sometimes that growth, for instance, the bad guy here, he went to Syria. He grew, but not in the way anybody wanted him to. He grew the wrong way. Right. So, uh, that's one of the hardest things to do in a series is to make sure that the growth is happening and that the uh, it's still moving forward. It's not just stagnant. What are you doing these days, Brad, to to manage a series like this? Like, I mean, do you have a a story Bible, um, you know, that you're tracking characters that you've used here or there? And, uh, you know, do they all exist in the universe in your head somewhere? That, you know, yeah, I really so wish can... I really wish I'd have done a story Bible. Like I said, I didn't know I'd be this far into it because now it's, <laughs> and it's bitten me quite a few times. Uh, for instance, No Fortunate Son, Kurt uh, uh, Hale is uh, geographic. I mean, he's a bachelor and he's his niece is lost and it's a hostage situation. Pike's got to save him, blah, blah, blah. And then I got an email. Someone said, what happened to Kurt's wife? I was like, Kurt's not married. Well, I had one sentence in my very first book. And he says, I'm on a date night with my wife. I can't miss it. One throwaway sentence. Never mentioned the wife ever again, and I was convinced that I was like, he's not married. And I went back to the book. I'm like, oh, he is married. <laughs> so sometimes that that does happen. Yeah. Well, you know, it happens to the best of us. Um, one one thing about your books is they are white knuckle, um, you know, seat of your pants, uh, thrill rides for sure. Um, and uh, you know, but. But you can only keep someone's adrenaline pegged, um, you know, with the needle at 10 for so long before readers need a break before the next emotional scene, um, you know, so that it, it stays impactful. Uh, and one of the hallmarks of your books is kind of some wry humor um, that you sprinkle throughout the book. And and that really serves as uh, as, you know, the the off points uh, on the roller coaster to, to allow you to then enjoy the tent scenes even more. Um, is that something you think about in the writing or does it just kind of naturally come out of your storytelling style? It kind of naturally comes out. I do think about, I know what you're talking about on, on a bigger picture of, I've got to have a set piece here. I've got to, there's, 
there's got to be, I've got to explain something that's going on and you want to sandwich that in between certain things. So you don't have long drawn out boring segments where I might as well put a PowerPoint presentation in there and say, flip through these slides before we continue. Um, but the humor itself is that I'm kind of a smart Alex. So it's probably the only thing Pike and I have in common. So sometimes I'll be writing something and it'll just, I'll think of a, something that's funny and I'm like, well, I'll put it in the book. Like the um, Ghosts of War, he's working with Israelis again. They come in every three books or so. And uh, he, the Israeli tells somebody on the phone, I'm the bill collector. Come to get the bill. He's saying it really scarily and scares everybody. And uh, Pike says, well, I thought you were going to ask for your $2 um, from the movie Better Off Dead. <laughs> of course, Israeli doesn't get it. But everybody else who's re read the book so far, I get emails all the time laughing. They said, I can't believe you put that in there. That's funny. That's funny. Um, Brett, as someone who has um, lived uh, a lot of the um, the the situations that you write about, or the the locales, and and have have used you know, the equipment. Um, when you start writing a book um, like you do, do do you ever wonder if you're writing things that are above the average reader's head, like using um, you know nomenclature that that the the average um, thriller reader that's in the bookstore picks it up and goes, "What in the world is he talking about?" Um, you know, how, how much do you, does inside baseball um, scare you as a writer or uh, do you find yourself, you know, editing yourself and going, well, well, you know, of course, this means something to me, but it probably doesn't mean anything to to the guy driving the UPS truck in, in you know, Nebraska or something. Uh, it, it, there's two different segments to that. Number one, the, for the nomenclature type stuff, I do use military nomenclature, but it's usually only in dialogue because that's exactly what somebody would say. Sure. So when somebody like Pike says, you know, they clear a house and he says, start SSE. Well, SSE stands for sensitive site exploitation. Uh, Pike is not going to say start sensitive site exploitation. He's going to say start SSE or he's going to say, let's go to the top instead of let's go to the tactical operations center. Um, but what I it, be sure and do. So if he says start SSE and then the next paragraph are Brett, Knuckles, uh, Jennifer ripping through the house looking for evidence. Well, you may not know it stands for sensitive site exploitation, but you do know SSE means search this house. Right. And same for a tactical operations center. Now, the um, when I write a, a gunfight scene or a fight scene or things like that, I have in my head of what's happening. And I because I've you know done it before. I, it, to me, it flows completely naturally. And I'm like, I know exactly what's going on here. Uh, and then my wife's my first reader and she'll read it. And if she doesn't understand what's going on. I'll have to rewrite because she's she is basically like the UPS driver. She she'll read it and say, I don't get what he's doing here. Um, and so then I'll, I'll clean it up and make it better. But you, in my mind, when you're doing an action scene, you want the, the reader, it's like a car wreck. You want the reader in the car as it wrecks. You don't want the reader standing on the corner watching the car wreck as somebody else you know, describes it. Uh, and so I try to make those as, as fast as possible, not fast so much in word count, but I don't want to, I don't bore the reader with a bunch of you know military stuff like he, pulled his Glock 23 with RMR holocyte from his Kydex holster as he put on his Oakley sunglasses when you can just say pistol. Right. I saw a pistol. Well, the reader knows what a pistol is. You have to know it's, you know, some Glock 23 with a holocyte, unless that's necessary. Now, there's been times when I've, uh, like the Chinese have a suppressed pistol, which is uh, indigenous, unique to China. Yeah. And so I described that pistol, and it's because Pike's going to take these guys on the guy loses his pistol and he's going to recognize the fact it's a chinese pistol and that's a clue for these guys are chinese
So those certain times, there is a reason to put it in there. Uh, other times, there's not, and I just said, I don't do it. End of Days, the brand new Pike Logan thriller is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, go grab it today. We're going to have links to it in the show notes of the episode. Or go visit your local bookstore and and you know buy that hardback to put on your bookshelf and show all your friends that uh, that you are better than them because you have the new Brad <laughs> Taylor book. Uh, Brad, uh, is, is the 17th uh, Logan thriller uh, in the works? It's in the works right now as we speak. In fact, we were able to go to book research. We went to Croatia for a research trip. And right now. Croatia, that's that's intriguing. I can't wait to see what comes out of there. <laughs> um, we're going to put links to, to the book in the show notes of this episode, Brad. Like I said, um, if people want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you've got going on, uh, where can they find you online? Where's your home uh, online? Uh, my website's bradtaylorbooks.com, and uh, I have excerpts of all the books in there. I'm not sure if Into Days excerpt's up yet or not. It might be, but it's going to be close. Uh, it'll be up soon, but the other books all have excerpts. And then I'm you know, on Facebook, um, bradtaylorbooks.com, and Twitter, bradtaylorbooks.com. Well, I just flipped over, and uh, the End of Days excerpt is up, and uh, so, so people can go uh, read that right now. Uh, Brad, always fun catching up and chatting. We're going to send everyone to see you and to pick up their copy of End of Days. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Jason yanked the coils of safety rope to one shoulder and heaved them out the attic window. The bundle bounced over the roof line and dropped to the yard below. He tightened the harness making sure the shoulder straps were snug over his sweatshirt. He threaded his rope through the braking device, tested it, and clipped everything to the carabiner at his navel. So far, so good. Fireman Mike would be proud. His stomach flipped as he neared the octagonal window. Had he tied the correct knots? Would he get himself killed? Weeks had passed since Mike's tutorial and... But he had to attempt the break-in now, while both Van Brunts were at the Christmas Eve service. He swung his legs through the window and felt for the roof. His sneakers gripped the shingles and he wriggled out, grateful for once to have feet as big as snowshoes. He pulled on a ski mask and sang, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. He lowered his body. Wind punched him in the jaw like a supervillain, surprising him. His sweatshirt rode up and snow burrowed into his navel. He looked down but couldn't see his feet. He relaxed his hands and put a few ounces of weight on the rope. Clots of snow broke away, dove over the edge, and took far too long to hit ground. He drew his rope around the pipe and pulled tight. Now he could drop. No, you will not drop. You will repel. You will repel very safely. He backed towards the edge, towards the point of no return. The backyard lurched into view. It was a four-story fall, and he'd probably hit the stairs on the way down. He sledded helplessly. His legs fell, swung, and kicked the side of the house. Alarm bells went off in his head. He gripped the rope. It looked like nothing. A shoelace. Jason Crane, you're a damn fool. He went limp and fell over. The rope gave a jolt, and the harness tried to castrate him. He twisted, trying to save his poor descendants. He began to spin. His arm bashed through a row of icicles. The spin slowed, reversed, 
and at last he came to a stop with his back to the house, dangling over the backyard. Thank you, Rope. That's a good rope. Well done. He tried to turn around, but couldn't. With patience, he worked out a method of kicking in circles and managed to press his sneakers to the side of the house. He needed slack. He gathered his loose rope to the small of his back and disengaged the brake. Zip! He fell fast, all his weight on the rope now. His feet, planted, shot up over his head. The brake caught him, and the rope vibrated as wildly as a guitar string striking a note of panic. Jason heard a crunching sound and looked up. The leaf gutter crumpled and poured a stream of bitter ice water into his eyes. He snarled and wiped his face, dripping humiliation. Jason rested a moment and stared at his reflection in the glass. He was an enormous Macy's balloon drifting over New Jersey, tethered at the navel like underdog. How the hell did you get up here, kid? He did an awkward split, one foot above the window and the other below, hanging sideways with his weight on one hip. He closed his eyes and reached for the sill, crouching against the side of the house. His fingernails found the weather stripping, and he tugged. Locked. He cursed and tugged again, anger rising. He grabbed the frame with both hands and pulled with all his spider strength. Something popped. The window rose and the curtains splashed out. Jason dove headfirst into the fabric, wriggled and kicked, let out some rope and fell with a wump into his archenemy's lair.